your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap because you're an american express platinum guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through amex travel which means a 4 p.m checkout and those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Support for this episode comes from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. That's why Viator has over 300,000 bookable experiences. So there's always something for everyone. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. Plus, Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. One app, over 300,000 travel experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Hey, it's Max. Before we get started, uh, I want to tell you about how the show is made possible this week. First off, it's by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Start building your website today at squarespace.com and use the code LONGFORM at checkout. You'll get 10% off. Squarespace. Build it beautiful. Also bringing the show today... Howl, it's a brand new app and website that's going to change the way you think about podcasts. With Howl Premium, you're going to get exclusive access to dozens of original miniseries and audio documentaries, comedy albums. They've got all the archives of WTF with Mark Maron and other shows you might love, like Comedy Bang Bang or How Did This Get Made. The whole thing's just $4.99 a month. If you use the promo code LONGFORM, you'll get a full month free trial. Go check it out, howl.fm, and use the promo code LONGFORM for a one-month free trial. Thanks to them for sponsoring the show. And here's that show. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I am Evan Ratliff of The Atavist. I am joined by Max Linsky and Aaron Lambert from Long Form. Hey. Hey, you guys. Hey, guys. Good to see you guys. Yeah. It's nice to be around the table with you guys again. Yeah. I know we're not supposed to talk about uh, like studio stuff, but <laughs> you guys both have brand new microphones that you're talking to. I feel like your little brother who got like the hand-me-down. I'm using the old microphone. That is such bullshit. You know that you're not like our little brother. You sound like our dad every week, and you continue to sound like our dad. Not even with a microphone, sli- I don't. Even with a slightly worse microphone, God, you sound like- fighting. <laughs> All right, who fine. Let's move show? on. Who is on the show this week? Uh, this week, I talked to Matt Cher, or Matthew Cher, as his byline goes. Uh, Matt very recently wrote a story for the Atavist magazine called Whatsoever Things Are True. It's an incredible story. It's uh, one of our best, I think, that we've ever done. And uh, he also is uh, an inveterate freelancer. Smithsonian, GQ, New York Magazine, New York Times Magazine, you name it. We talked about a lot. We talked about the business of freelancing. Good, you guys got, got into that? into it, yeah. That's like, I, I would say at this point, our number one request from listeners is like, please, can you explain the economics of freelancing? I feel like our what our listeners actually want is just like a piece of metadata, which is how much money does each person on the show earn? <laughs> like, even when we've asked about it, people are like, no, no, I want an exact figure. We should just start every show with, let's, for starters, how much money do you make? Yeah. Yeah. We'll welcome, welcome to the podcast, and can I see your tax returns? Speaking of money, do we have any sponsors well i've i haven't asked max about um further sponsorship possibilities but i know that our sponsor is of course mailchimp the best way to send an email newsletter over eight million businesses rely on it shouldn't yours no doubt we do long form does yeah out of us does yeah who doesn't i don't know i don't know anyone who has a uh uh, i don't even know the name of a different mailing list (laughs) that's how ubiquitous their uh, excellent services do we have any other sponsors yeah, but they're at other parts in the show. For now, we're just okay. going to get to the interview. Stay tuned for more sponsors. <laughs> it's Evan <laughs> and Matt Cherry. Matt Cher, welcome to the Longform Podcast. Thanks for having me. You've come upstairs from the bar. Were you down at the bar? I was down at the bar. <laughs> How long were you at the bar? Uh, let's see. We were down there for about an hour. Mm. I mean, we should say, I don't know if you really, if disclosure is the right word, but in addition to you writing for The Atavist twice, we also know each other through our wives who are childhood friends. That's right. And our babies are best friends. Two, three weeks apart? Four weeks apart? Four weeks apart, I think. And I keep thinking of them that 
Mabel is her closest friend, even though they've only met once, and I don't think they really looked at each other the entire time. They're not even aware at that point. No, but four weeks, I mean, in baby time, that's so long, but then you think, you know, down the line, in in like 10 years or something, they're going to be exactly the same age. Weeks cease to matter, right? Yeah, it when it's it a baby, you measure everything by days or by weeks, and then that all evaporates. Yeah. Well, so I, when, I, I think of you as like a real... Freelancer's freelancer. You've written for a lot of places. You also go a lot of places. Like, looking back at the stories you've written in the last few years, it's like, you're going to Siberia, you're going to Egypt, you're going to Brazil for the Times Magazine. And I am interested in talking about what does having a baby do to that? Is that changing what your assignments you're taking right now? I think it does now. I mean, I think also travel was to a certain extent always a discussion with my wife, with Katie. I mean, I think it was, you know, it's not, it's not easy. I would, some of these stories have recently required three weeks at a time on the road, Yeah, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. I mean, that's pre-baby. I don't know if I'd be able to do three weeks Yeah, post-baby, but, you know, my wife was always really generous and accepting about that because she used to be a journalist herself and she knew that she knew that that was sort of how it had to be to a certain extent and i mean i, I should add too that i'm really bad at saying no so when somebody <laughs> somebody says you know for an assignment to an assignment yeah. yeah when somebody says you know what do you want to go to this crazy place i i almost always say yes and i traveled a lot before i was writing full time and uh, it just—it's such a terrific opportunity. It's also—I mean, you—you you know this as well. Having traveled for work, it's the the, the the traveling that you do for work is so different than the traveling you do by yourself. If you're going out on vacation or something like that, you're working off a guidebook almost exclusively or recommendations from people. When you're reporting, you're working with local people, and you're also sometimes working with a fixer or a photographer. So you get this level of access to the culture and to the world that you would never, never get if you were just, you know, going out by yourself. I mean, you you know, you, you'll meet a source at a mm-hmm. restaurant or at a bar, you'll, or someone will point you to the museum that locals go to. You get a sense of the place that is really unique. So I've come to think of it on sort of two levels. And I, it's strange because I feel like I have almost stopped traveling for fun because now I just want to be home when I'm not on the road. I, I feel yeah. like homesick for my for my family and for my video games and my <laughs> <laughs> and my sporting events. It's good that you said family first. I did. I, yeah. I thought I had to think about it though. But you know also I think you know the the element of I don't do war reporting so that's never that's never really been part of the the discussion, but a person who I considered to be maybe my greatest mentor, Matt Power, who I knew for a while. I mean, he was so always so generous with his time, and you know, when he passed away on assignment, that was crazy. I mean, that was a that was a a bit of a wake up call. I mean, I did have to sort of sit down and think about it, and I remember um, I got the news because. Uh, Charlie Holmans, who used to be an editor at The Atavist and is now at The Times Magazine, was close with Matt as well. And Charlie was calling me at like nine at night. And I was like, what? Why are you calling me? And I was out to dinner and I went and got the call. And he told me what had happened. And after that, you know, that that probably shook me more than than anything else. And even, even you know, the baby as well. And yeah. that, it just, it's sort of like... When you're out in these places, you don't really think about, you know, you don't really give serious thought to what might happen, what kind of accidents you could run into because you feel like, you know, it's a blast. And I'm sure Matt would say the exact same thing. It's just, you know, it's a joy being able to do this kind of stuff. But that was that was one time where I did really sort of have to think about it a little bit. One thing I'm, I'm really interested in, especially when someone's had a career of writing for a lot of different magazines, is sort of like, do you feel like you're engaged in an overall project? Like, did you set out to write about certain things that, and those are now the things you are writing about? Or is it more like, 
you took assignments where they came, you got some expertise in one area or interest in one area and you just pursued that. Like if we look back at like the Matt Share at the beginning of your career, did you say, okay, here's where I want to go. Here's what I want to write about. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's interesting. My, my career would have probably been easier in a lot of ways if I had chosen at the beginning and said, I'm going to focus on this. And, you know, in the past couple of years, I don't get a lot of these emails by any means, but people have written, you know, who are in J school or something and say, you know, what, do you have any piece of advice? And I do feel like specializing is probably going to get you more assignments in the long run because people, you know, when editors are sitting around, they think, you know, to any given magazine, they think, who do we want to do this story about sports? Who do we want to do this story about crime? And they, you know, there are the people who come to mind right away. And when you're more of a generalist, you it can be dangerous because you're falling into this gap where people, you know, you're not necessarily the first person to come to mind. So anyway, that that's a that's a long way of saying no. I mean, I I feel like I should have. There are things that I love writing about, like crime, for instance. I really love writing about crime, but I don't think that I would make anybody's, you know, super short list of people to write about a, a given murder or something. So you're on my short list to write about a murder. <laughs> <That's true. laughs> you mean anybody that's important, it. like important <laughs> editors? That's true. I mean, hopefully, I mean, I would love to be in. If there's a murder anywhere in my vicinity. I would generally call you. I'm the out of his correspondent <laughs> for crime and adventure. Uh, but no, I mean, I think I think that, yeah, I mean, there are things that, that do feel closer to my heart in terms of writing, but it, I do feel like I've bounced around to a certain extent, taken opportunities where they've come, partially because I came from a newspaper background. I worked, from newspaper, worked for newspapers first and... You know, what newspaper did you start out at? At the Globe. I worked at the Globe first. Right out of college? Or did you, did you go to J school? No, I didn't go to J school. I went um, to a... Uh, I mean, my I, my GPA in high school was had to be like a 1.9 or something like that. So I got into basically one college, the University of Maine. I got out of Maine and I moved to Boston, which is where my family is from. And... Uh, I worked as a bike messenger for a year trying to sell articles to different places. And I got an internship finally at the Globe. And then I worked for the Globe for a while. And then I went to the Christian Science Monitor to write and started to get to travel a little bit. So I worked there for a while. And then I started trying to get into magazines because I felt like I felt really strongly that I would probably be better at that. The stories that I was interested in doing were were longer. So I came at it from kind of an outsider perspective. and. And that affected me from the beginning because I was just, I took stories that people would give me. You know, I would pitch any any story that I thought somebody would take. Where did you literally start with that? I want to write for a magazine. So do you remember what you your first attempt was? I pitched places nonstop and got rejected. Just cold? Just yeah, like sending you? cold. Because I moved to New York. I didn't know anybody. I knew not a single person. So the first um, feature that I got published was in Harper's, and I uh, was, I will never forget it. I think I still have the emails. So my editor there was Ted Ross, who's now at uh, the New Republic, and he accepted this pitch. It was about um, Hasidic infighting in a community in Crown Heights. And he accepted the pitch, and I wrote a draft and he wrote back that email that you always dread getting that I didn't know to dread getting yet. That was like good start. <laughs> good start. You thought it was really just uh... I thought it was like, wow, good start. Yeah. That's fantastic. Good start. <laughs> Little did I later I would come to realize that like when I would open up an email and it said good start, just that's that's what that's what they're saying so they can just like kick you right in the balls. Because no one right can actually like, say This is terrible. This yeah. or just like this is this is going to be all work. Like you have to have, this is going to be great. First of all, this story is going to be great. Second of all, here are 500 things that you did wrong that needs to be, need to be fixed, including the entire structure of the story. <laughs> and that's always what follows. I mean, different editors have different techniques. Some of them will go like a couple lines and be like, oh, good, good start. Uh, you know, uh, these characters felt very alive. But uh, <laughs> just on a side note, I just want to recall that like the, the most cutting piece of criticism I've ever gotten from an editor is I turned in this story uh, at New York Magazine um, where I wrote for a while and the editor wrote back. And I concentrated on these two characters for a very long period of time. They're really in the story a lot. And like, I let them tell jokes and stuff. And the editor wrote back, she was like, you know, I, 
I think that you think these guys are a lot funnier than they actually are. <laughs> and she's like, I was like, oh, God, my judgment is terrible. And I just bored the hell out of her. But no, so uh, so he, uh, Ted at Harper's gave me a couple couple tries and I struck out on the next two tries. And then he was finally like, he wrote back and he was like, you know, uh, I don't usually give somebody a fourth chance, but because usually I'll just pay you the kill fee, but I will give you the fourth chance because they, because I was a first time writer for Harper's, my kill fee was going to be like $300 or something like that. So he didn't care. He was like, yeah, knock yourself out. So I just, you know, burrowed myself into my office and worked on it for, for like, you know, a solid three weeks and actually cold called uh, Jack Hit. Uh, I'd read an article of, of You just his. called up Jack Hit out of the blue and said, help me? Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. I was like, I uh, need to understand how to structure a Harper's article. And he was like, this is what you do. And he told me how to structure a Harper's article. What? And it worked. It worked. He was like, you have the opening that's a little bit of history and like you back your way in. And then you have the Harper's paragraph that's like, um, the Harper's paragraph is always like, I decided to go investigate or like you set up this big history and then you're like, and then I journeyed to this place or I went to this city to find out what had happened. And then he's like, you just write five scenes after that. And then you close the article. And it, and then I did that. I did that. And then I sent it to, I sent it, I sent it to Ted, Jack, if you're listening, thank you. Uh, but I sent it to Ted and he was like, wow, how the hell did you do this that? This reads like a Jack Hitt story. <laughs> And then you did a book out of the out of that piece, which I shouldn't have done. I feel like I probably shouldn't have done the book. I noticed you redesigned your website and don't have a mention of it. There's no mention of that book on the website. I should have a mention of the book on the website because it was formational. But I think that I shouldn't have written the book at that point in time. So, in other words, I had I was still really new and trying to figure out what magazine writing was about and how to approach different pieces and how to report. And I had no business writing an 80,000-word book. Hmm. No business at all. If it took me gazillion tries and Jack Hitt's advice to write a 5,000-word <laughs> piece, then I definitely had no business writing an 80,000-word piece. You should have called, uh, called like Michael Lewis. I know. Been like, Michael Lewis, i got to write this book. How do I write a book? <laughs> Basically, what happened is after that book came out, in the next couple of years, I got to write pieces where I finally felt like shit was clicking. Yeah. Like I finally felt like, I understand this a little bit. And part of that came from having immensely good editors who, who were able, because when you write a book, you, do, you have, my editor on the book was fantastic. His name's Eric Nelson. He, book editors can't spend as much time as magazine editors do on a piece. And I think this often in this whole debate that we have now about magazine journalism goes a little bit forgotten that so much work goes into magazine pieces, just insane, insane amounts of editing work. Um, and the drafts people go through, you go through with your editor. It's just, it takes so much work. And the book process, I understand that it, some editors do try to do that, but book editors generally have, you know, they're, they have like 20 books that they have to put out in a year. I mean, they can't go through every section and pick it apart the way a magazine editor could. So I, I would like to write another book, and I feel like now I'm I'm better armed. When you say that something clicked, what what do you think caused it to click? Was it just writing more stories and you, you sort of got a feel for how, how those stories go? Or was there something fundamental you felt like you were missing that suddenly you understood? Well, it was a couple of things. One, I started to understand what to look for and started to understand during the reporting process to be able to pick out things that I knew would become a focus. Because part of what happened with the first Harper story is, you know, it's a massive topic and I didn't really know where to start. I didn't have a person to start. I didn't have a vehicle for the story. And I started concentrating on trying to be able to pick them out sooner. So I'll give you an example. The um, the one story where I felt like I really actually was starting to get it was in 2011, I did this story for New York Magazine about uh, there was a young kid who was killed in, in Borough Park. It was a Hasidic kid. Yeah. And um, it turned out he was killed by a sort of a member of the Hasidic community, but an outsider member a little bit. You know, he was from inside the community. So the cops had come in before they caught this guy and they turned the neighborhood upside down. And they'd said, okay, it's going to, you know, obviously it's an outsider. Hasidic people, you know, they don't kill their own. There's no precedent for this. And uh, I went in, the assignment was to just write a sort of 
not a TikTok, but to look at the how this had affected this neighborhood. And I, I realized from the beginning that I, and I, I knew from other stories that I'd done that it wasn't going to be possible to do it without finding a person who would kind of carry the story on his or her back. In yeah. other words, I needed a person to follow to follow through the case. So I, as soon as I went and I was looking for that person, I ended up finding this guy uh, who had sort of located the killer more or less at the same time the police was who was a who was Hasidic himself and he was sort of a Hasidic private detective type and he'd been there for every step of the story yeah he like so, got all the security camera footage together and like exactly. traced, traced the boys and then he told me I remember we were sitting down and he in his living room and he was like and then he went to go visit the the dad of the of the kid who was killed and I was like when he told me that you know I was like wow there's the you know, there's the ending right there. And I could see the beginning and the ending and I could see sort of everything kind of in between. So I felt like I was starting to understand where all that stuff fit. Now, I, I should add that like after that, I mean, it's not like it's easy coasting. I, I think like the rate of stories that I've had killed has declined over the years, but I've still, I still, after that, I remember like right after that, I had a story killed that didn't work out uh-huh. where I wasn't able to, to find, I wasn't able to make it work in that way. So, you know, we had, we had Lawrence right on and he, he literally calls that person in the story, the donkey, I yeah. believe, or the, he might, it might be mule. Yeah. With the cart. He's, yeah. He's, he's like, that's the, the person that's going to carry you through the story. I think you sort of need it. I think you sort of need it. And I think that when you don't have it, especially now the way people read long form pieces that you're, you're in you're, you're endangering yourself if you sort of open the lens too wide at the beginning and sort of say, you know, give somebody a huge panoramic picture of a place. I mean, if they don't have a person to latch on to towards the beginning, it's really hard to pull them through in the way that you would want them to. Hmm and you'd want the reader to kind of be hooked. Hey, it is your other host, Aaron, with a quick word from our sponsor, Masterclass. Masterclass has made it possible for anyone to learn from the best in the world. They've paired up great instructors with Silicon Valley engineers and created a brand new type of online learning experience. Now, when I say these are the best in the world, I mean it. Dustin Hoffman teaching an acting class, James Patterson teaching writing, Serena Williams teaching tennis. Each class is a video lesson. I think it's about three to five hours long, plus a workbook. It's 90 bucks. There is nowhere else in the world where you're going to learn from instructors of this caliber. So I want you to go to masterclass.com slash longform. You'll learn more and support the show. Thank you, Masterclass. I recommend checking them out today. Our next sponsor is Squarespace. Uh, In my younger days, I used to make websites for people. People still ask me very often to make a website for them. And I say, I do not do that anymore because there is a better way. And that way is with Squarespace. With no coding skills whatsoever, you can get a professionally designed website with their easy, intuitive tools. Uh, they, They have a new version out. It's got beautiful fonts, beautiful layouts. It works great on the iPhone. I recommend it whether you're building a site for your bakery or your band or whatever you are doing with yourselves that needs a website. The best part is you can get a free domain if you sign up for a year. So I want you to go to squarespace.com slash longform. That's squarespace.com slash longform. You will get 10% off your purchase and support this show. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Here is Evan Bat with Matt Share. Both those pieces you mentioned, it's interesting because they're both in took place in like Orthodox Hasidic communities in different parts of Brooklyn. Did you always feel comfortable trying to penetrate those types of communities? Just from the outside, it seems like they would not be particularly friendly to reporters wanting to come in and sort of like, in, in one case, in both cases, really like air these sort of disputes or dark secrets or they're not. And I'm not, I don't, I don't consider myself to be especially good at that kind of thing, but I think being sort of the, I just I would just go into Borough Park. I went down there every day. I was living in Park Slope at the time, and I just walk. It's, it's a few miles, and I like listen to rap music. I'd be like, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna knock on some doors. I'm gonna I'm gonna get somebody to talk to me. Uh, and and you know, I would say nine out of ten people slammed the door. 
in my face and then the tent would open and be like, are you Jewish? (laughs) (laughs) I'd be like, well, actually, I mean, this is, it's an interesting (laughs) question for me because I was not raised Jewish. My dad's Jewish. My mom's not Jewish. And I don't know if it's a lie. I guess it's a lie. I mean, I maybe shouldn't admit that I, I mean, they said, are you Jewish? And I said, well, yeah. And then that's, that sort of helped. I mean, I think that that helped insofar as that people who are the Hasidic community in general is very worried rightly about being made fun of in the press, sort of, you know, this, this, you know, however they get labeled in, in whatever media, it's usually as a backwards society, which of course in some ways they are, but in some ways it's a very modern society. And, you know, people are hypersensitive about that. So... I think this idea that if I could say, you know, well, I'm I'm Jewish, at least there was a, a flicker of hope that maybe I wasn't going to throw them under the bus mm-hmm. at this particular time. That helped. But then you did another one for GQ about people uh, getting divorces by sort of kidnapping yeah. uh, husbands who refused to divorce their wives and like essentially torturing them into yeah. uh, divorcing their wives. Is it a case of you're interested in this community, you know a little bit about it, so you f- see or find stories that are there? Or is it actually a case of what you were describing earlier, which is like editors say, hey, this is really interesting. It's happening in this community. Who knows about that? Matt Sharon knows about that. Yeah. I mean, I am going to go on record here. If there are any editors <laughs> listening, I do not want to write another oh, really? story. <laughs> I'm done with the Hasidic Jewish crime stories. Uh, no, but yeah, that in, in that case with GQ, is totally a matter of that. It's uh-huh. like, okay, you know, he wrote this story for New York. He wrote one for Harper's. He's our Hasidic correspondent, which of course is, is a, you know, it's a it's a hilarious idea that I would ever turn out to be a, anyone's Hasidic correspondent, but yeah, with the GQ one, that that is how that happened. I mean, that was a case, and and GQ is a great magazine. So when they said, "Do you want to try to do this?" I said, "Yeah." Do you get tired of the of the lifestyle of being a freelancer? Well, it's funny because I'm ending my staff writer tenure at Smithsonian. Maybe this is my announcement. Oh, this might be the announcement. Breaking news. Breaking news. Uh, you're, you're ending your... So you were a staff writer... For a year, uh-huh. give or take. And uh, and now I'm going to go on contract with them to do a certain amount of stories a year. What's the, What was the difference? The difference is health insurance and a little more money, I would say. Huh. Yeah, definitely. But, I mean, what I did... I found the opposite, actually. So I've been freelancing for so long and I went to Smithsonian and it's a great magazine and I got to do some amazing travel around the world, but I was just, I could not turn off the freelance switch in my head. I could not not be thinking about all these different types of stories. I would, you know, I've got like, my Google alert list looks like a serial killer Google <laughs> alert list. It's like... I feel like this is like, a common trope among uh, yeah. freelancers. Like I have very... I have a whole like severed feet yeah. thing going oh. on because there was a severed feet story. Now someone's going to take it from me. Yeah. No, actually, I've talked to like three freelancers who also were following the same like severed feet situation, and none of us uh, did anything out of it. But you kind of like get these these conceptions that like there's a story out there about X, Y, or Z, and just set up that Google alert and see what comes in. You sort of realize after a while with Google alerts is that it, there's this crazy pecking order. Not pecking order is the wrong term. It's like this food chain that happens. So a newspaper writer, uh, a tabloid writer, a TV reporter will find a story and publish like three words, three sentences on it. And then a magazine writer somewhere will be like, oh boy, this is perfect. (laughs) And then the magazine writers will descend on this place. So the magazine writers write the piece and it comes out. And then as a magazine writer, you start getting all these like queries from like TV people who are like, (laughs) you know, I'd love to make a TV show out of something like this. And it all starts, you know, I mean, maybe there are magazine writers out there who have, are such good reporters that they are organically coming up with their own stories. But I would wager that the majority of magazine writers are working off like that one weird sentence in a newspaper article yeah. or something. There's no shame in it. The, there's a trope online where people say like, oh, I liked that better when I read it in blah, like a much like a blog or something. But actually like ideas get, they kind of move into different forms and someone who can do like a longer approach and report it out. I feel like that's how it works. They become bigger too. the stories or you hope they become bigger, not just in length, but they come become bigger in context. But so you were plagued by these Google alerts 
you were like required to do certain stories for Smithsonian and then you were sort of getting all of these other ideas because they were stories that Smithsonian wouldn't necessarily do. Yeah. The story that I did most recently for The Atavist was one that was exactly like that. I mean, when that first broke. So it first broke in October of last year, of 2014. Okay. It's essentially the story of a man in Chicago who was, his name was Anthony Porter. He was arrested in 1982 for killing a couple in a park in Chicago. He went to trial in 1983. He was sent to prison later to be executed. And right before he was about to be executed, a group of students at Northwestern University led by a professor at Northwestern, David Protus, got amassed enough evidence that seemed to show that Porter was innocent and that a second man, Al Story Simon, was guilty. So Al Story Simon replaces Anthony Porter in prison. And then eventually, last year, Al Story Simon himself is released because the the prosecutors there say that the Northwestern team had effectively coerced Simon into confessing to the crime. So for me, I mean, that's the, that's the sort of nuts and bolts about it. But for me, it was just this crazy story about this idea that you could have two human beings who are convicted for a crime separately and two human beings who are exonerated for the same crime and have nobody left in prison for this murder, you know, 33 years ago. It was just... It was insanity, and it also kind of flipped a little bit. I mean, when I first started looking into it, I assumed that it was flipping the Innocence Project, uh, the general Innocence Project story on its head, like the story that we're used to reading where the Innocence Project bails someone out of prison at the last minute, and there's lots of hugs and everything. And here there was the extension of that. That happened, literally. There were lots of hugs and everyone was filming it. But then, you know, a decade later, there's accusations that the Innocence Project had coerced or an innocence project type group had coerced somebody into into confessing. So that was a that was an example of something that I'd been watching, you know, and when that happened, I was like, God, I really, you know, I really want to be able to do that. And when you're on staff at a place, Smithsonian's relatively general interest, but it's does I mean they don't do crime. And I was also at the point where I'd I'd you know, I w- there were assignments coming to me for the first time and you know, not the first time in my career, but they were coming at such a volume where I really, and I was turning people down and I felt like, man, I really, I, I could feel like an idiot if I turn these, I, again, I'm bad at saying no. And I'm also have the worst regret ever. If I see, you know, if I say no to a story or if I've, you know, I've got that, I use Evernote to keep track of stories. And yeah. if, if, uh, you know, if a, if a story doesn't come together for me and then someone publishes it and I'm like, Oh, God. Uh, that is a shit feeling. It's a yeah, terrible I know that feeling. feeling. Presumably, if you're getting assignments, like you probably get more assignments. That's a really interesting question. Do you think that's true? I mean, here, here's the here's the question. Like, if you say no to somebody, the received wisdom is that if you say no to somebody, they're going to come back and say, you know, they'll come back with another assignment later. But I kind of feel like that's bullshit. I kind of feel like if I say no to somebody, this is my fear in the back of my head. If I say no to somebody, they're just going to be like, well, whatever. Won't give that guy an assignment down the line. My personal experience working as an editor is is that, well, if someone just says, no, I don't have time to do that, but I'd love to do something for you. I mean, we get that all the time with people we want to write for us. And so then we try to think, okay, what's something, can we find something that's near them? Can we find something that, you know, we're trying to entice them into writing for us. I think the people that I have the reaction you're talking about to are people who take an idea like that and then they spend two months dithering around and you're you're emailing them and saying, hey, what's going on with this? And then eventually they just kind of drop it. And what they should have said is, I don't have time to do this. But when someone does that, I just think like, well, now you're just wasting our time. Uh, you're making me feel really guilty right now. Because Why did you do that? Uh, well, I'm, I know I did. I hope I didn't do that. But I, I mean, I have. I think it's fine to say no is what I'm saying. I guess. I, I mean, I, I have done that before. Where I, and I'm in the process of doing it. I have this story that I've really in love with but it's been really hard to carve out the time to do it and you know this editor is probably listening right now and she's probably oh god i hate this guy <laughs> he's going public with this but you know yeah never go never go on like a show or like a podcast or anything and talk about any of this i think that's a that that's, should be a good rule <laughs> well I'm, I'm gonna i'm gonna say something nice about you which you would because i feel like you're too modest but i think People like when we have ideas around here, we're always like, "What about this for Matt? Maybe Matt, maybe this would be good for Matt. Matt's probably too busy." And when other editors contact me, like I'll give them your name, and they say, "You know anybody for this story?" And partly it's that 
I think there's two, a couple of things. One is that the mix of reporting and writing, someone who can do both of those things very well is actually pretty rare. Like there's a lot of people trying to do this work and a lot of them shade a little bit on one side or the other and someone who can do both is valuable. But the other thing is just like fucking being nice to work with and uh, turning around drafts and actually doing revisions. I feel like there's such a premium on that for editors because when you've worked with a couple people who are a pain in the ass, all you want is someone to just say like, I know exactly what you want. I'm going to go do it and turn it around. Well, that's very nice of you to say. There is like the question about pushing back on on drafts and how, how you are to work with. And I think that is important. I think you're right, though, that there are an amazing amount of writers out there right now. There's just a Probably more writers, I think it's safe to say, or at least, you know, in aspiring writers than there ever have been before who are all sort of like, and the amount of publications is shrinking drastically. And it's created. well, a certain type of publications. That's in true. another way, the amount of publications is expanding. A publication that can pay enough to make it worth your while to work on a story for two months. Because this is something that's happening too. I mean, you can take, there are people out there who are stringing together. 15 blog posts like every two weeks or something like that or shorter pieces that they're getting paid, you know, three or $400 for. And the amount of people who aren't on staff and are available to write for publications and who can do the work, I think probably is relatively small. I would agree with that, I think. Well, let me ask you this very real question. The story that you just did for us, was that in fact worth your time? You talked about finding outlets that pay enough for it to be worth their time. I mean, there was a lot of drafts in the story. The story is, how many words was it? 15,000. 15,000 words. Not only were there a lot of drafts, but there were some drafts that maybe even undid things that we had asked for before uh, because the story was complicated and we couldn't figure out exactly how we wanted it to go. I made... uh point zero zero cents a word (laughs) no uh but i do think it's worth it i totally think it's worth it. you did all right on the word rate you're talking about your you're talking about your hourly rate that's true but you're not supposed to ever calculate your hourly rate that is and i never have have you you, no well once and that was it was a terrible mistake but you you do find that it varies drastically like some stories are really easy to do you know, you'll, you'll take a story that does that that has a good per word rate and doesn't take that long. And you can zoom through. You'll be like, "Wow, I'm rich." <laughs> also, the way people pay you in magazines, you get that check, and you're quotes. like, "Whoa, <laughs> I've never seen that much money in my entire life." Uh, and then immediately you realize you have to pay the IRS like all of it. Uh, but anyway, no. With this, I do feel like I, I totally feel like it was worth it because I do, and I'm not just saying this because you're asking the question, but I do feel like there are not that many places that would have been able to run it like it first of all there are not that many places that would have been able to run a 15,000 word article on this topic and give it the editing attention that it needed because it was extremely complicated and it required an editor in Katia at the Atavist who was willing to get her hands dirty with the material itself and I feel like it was funny watching Katia or, or like talking to Katia over the process because I feel like you know, there was a point where she wasn't just reading the drafts, but was doing her independent reporting herself. And then she'd be like, whoa, this story is fucked up. And that's when she started, you know, like I'd get an email at like 1130 p.m. And she'd be like, what about this? What about this? And it needed an editor like that. And I'm not convinced that it would have been possible to do that elsewhere and to give to give it the proper attention and to give it to run it at the proper length. Um, so and and to find people who were also interested in it. I mean, we were allowed also think about how long that was that it took from, you know, the gestation period to publication. It was a long time. Yeah, it, yeah, it did take a long time. And there was also a lot of fear throughout that someone else was going to do this story because well, a lot of people, I mean, as you said, it was this was everywhere when it first happened and people know about it. I mean, even now when it's out, people say, oh yeah, I thought about doing that story or yeah, I was wondering when someone was going to do something about that. And they didn't do it. I'm increasingly convinced that they did not do it because it was too complicated to unpack outside of Chicago, maybe. In Chicago, people would be at least familiar with some of the characters, so you wouldn't have to do a base 
you wouldn't have to do these explanations of like what Washington Park is, what Area One homicide is, who John Burge is, who you know Daly is, who Governor Ryan is. People would sort of know, but outside of Chicago, maybe they don't know. So you're, you're. I think people maybe thought that it was too much to bite off and. But also, I mean, the thing that we ran into, I think the thing that caused a lot of complication that I wanted to talk to you about was the, the issue of who actually did it. I mean, what makes the story so fascinating is you've got two guys, both of whom are convicted and exonerated separately for the same crime. But then you naturally feel that the reader would want to know, OK, which one of them do you think did it? And I think we spent a lot of time puzzling over whether or not that should be in the story. I'm happy with our decision not to state blatantly I think this person did it. And I think, you know, maybe someone else would have written it a different way. I don't know. I mean, I think Patrick Keefe, when he wrote that story about the, it was a professor, right, in Alabama who um, yes. had, so she went in, right, and she she shot people at the um, tenure board or something yeah. like that, right? And then he went back and dug into the, the old murder, which was the brother, right, the, which she maybe had, you know, maybe there'd been an accident with a gun at the house. And he had this amazing passage in there that was just, it, it's it's its own self-contained thing where he was just going to wrestle with whether he thought that she had actually killed her brother or, you know, whether he was entitled to draw that conclusion or not as a journalist. And I felt that I have my personal opinions about what happened, but to state either in the introduction or at the end exactly who I thought did it would have been to fall into the same trap that all those people in the story fell into where they just became so convinced and they just went on these crusades where they said, you know, I know without a shadow of a doubt that, that Porter did it or I know without a shadow of a doubt Simon did it. And I just was never to that point. And and also I, I do feel like the, the story itself in the end wasn't necessarily about who pulled the trigger it was about what a messed up roller coaster of a case this was and and it was about memory and it was about the criminal justice system and and i don't know i mean we watch law and order and we want to know who did it but i don't know maybe people who are listening will disagree if if, if they read the piece and say you know i really do want to know but well i wanted to know throughout who you thought did it for the sake of the editing process in a way because Katya had a view and I had a view and dis- we disagreed. We, She and I would argue in the office over and over again our perspectives on who committed this crime. It's like we got wrapped up in the same thing that all these characters got wrapped up in where I looked at the evidence one way and said, uh, I say evidence, the evidence that I had was what you had written in your drafts. I didn't have independent evidence. That's why Katya started researching it on the side was it so she, she could – she could not only improve the piece, but also best me in my understanding of what really happened there. But it changed the piece so much. Katya believed very strongly that that uh, in the first few drafts that I'd sent in that I wasn't getting the story exactly right, that there was, you know, that I was too biased in, in the favor of one of the men. And, you know, I, I think she was right to be skeptical. And I think it made the piece so much stronger to have somebody who really was willing to push back about that kind of stuff. What kind of trepidation did you have about this landing in Chicago, like uh, when it came out? Do people, yeah. What, how have people responded to it? I know you've talked to some of the characters in it, but have, in general, have you heard from people? Yeah, I have, and I think that it depends on the people who worked with the Northwestern team. Have said to me, you know, they have qualms about certain parts of it, but they say, generally speaking. That was a very fair shake, especially compared to the shake that they were getting before out of the Chicago media. Other people are just furious. They're, you know, they say, "Well, you make us sound like crazy people." <laughs> Who said you that? You are crazy people. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, so that there's a character in the in the story who um, is a current Chicago police uh, officer. His name is Martin Preeb, and he, you know, is absolutely convinced that Anthony Porter the guy convicted in the first go around in the first trial did it and that Al Story Simon is innocent and he's mistrustful of anyone who is not willing to say Al Story Simon is 100% innocent which I wasn't willing to do so he was furious about that and I think that that you know it had been covered so extensively different parts of the trial and different parts of the case in the Chicago media that a lot of Chicago newspapers were just tired of covering it and were tired of you know 
So I think there was sort of there was an interest too that someone, you know, I only went to Chicago a couple times and and I spent a lot of time on the phone with people, but there was a skepticism that somebody who came from outside Chicago could get it right. I mean, I do feel mm. like we we got it pretty right. I also feel like I'm never going to get that story again. I feel really strongly that there's never going to be a story that is as weird and wild as that. I, I don't know. Maybe Why I'm, would you think that? Because it's so rare to run into a story that has so many reversals. Because from a storytelling perspective, reversals are the ultimate. They're like the holy grail. It's like you have the, those big reversals. I mean, obviously, David Grant is the master of that, of the reversal story, where he has the story that flips in the middle, and suddenly you're like, where the hell am I? But to find those kind of stories and have them not be told at the length that we told it at is really rare, I think. And I'm I, and to have a story that had so much history to it and so much about the Chicago criminal justice system and and it was it was about so many things at once and also the central case was so fascinating. I don't know. But it also had this uh, reporting problem, which is reporters always have some some way answer for like when do you when do you know that you're done with the story? And it's like, I hear the same people telling me the same things over and over again. But you, you, you were like calling people. I was, I was mostly Katya, but I was talking to you late, very late in this story. And you were saying, I just talked to this guy and he, and he told me this thing. And it's really that we've got to get this in. Like you were still, you talked to like almost a hundred people and you were still talking to people at the end. Like the end of the reporting was literally when we like closed yeah. the story. Yeah, like you could re- be reporting it now. Yeah, it's true. And and with the way that the atavist is set up, theoretically, we could still be reporting it. <laughs> we could still be altering that We have draft. deadlines here. I don't know <laughs> if it looks like we don't, but we do. I really stretched that deadline. No, but I think often with reporting, you, you get to this phase where, you know, the, when you're starting out, it's the hardest. You're knocking on doors. No one will talk to you. But when you start to talk to people and you get people to trust you, inevitably, they will say, well... Like, maybe I'll introduce you to my friend and maybe they wait like three weeks to introduce you to your friend, their friend. And finally you get to talk to that friend. You're like, wow, this is something I never knew. And you have to slot that into the story. And I mean, that's also what was so great about this process is it did, you know, there was a deadline, obviously, but there was the flexibility. You know, that story might have had to ship to print, you know, because these ma- a print magazine will ship, what, three weeks before it hits the stand, something like that. Or more of it or monthly, more. yeah. Um, yeah, so, but I, I really, I strongly believe that. I mean, maybe I'll be proved wrong. Maybe there's a crazier story out there. Maybe you should retire. Maybe Have you thought about retiring? And be a, be a house husband. <laughs> You'd be good at that. I would be good at a house husband. So one story I wanted to ask you about specifically, just because this story fascinates me, is uh, this men's journal story you did about these Thai boxers. Not even Thai boxers. They're Thai prisoners who fight their way, can fight their way out of prison uh, by fighting sort of like MMA style against people that are selected for them. Where did the story come from? Like, what is the genesis of, how did you find out about this? So originally, uh, a couple years back, I'd been asked to do a story for uh, Hemispheres magazine, which is an in-flight magazine. I think it's in this building. It is. They are in this building, yes. Are they? So the, an editor there had sent me a link to a very different kind of prison story. It was like a, it was much more uh, heartwarming. It was about like uh, someone had opened a gym in a prison in, in Thailand and, and uh, he wanted a story about – it seems strange to say this out loud because I remember when I always <laughs> tell this to they're like, they wanted this for an in-flight magazine, but they did. I don't know. <laughs> I know. Anyway, so they did. Uh, but I started Googling around and I was like, I found this, this is called prison fight where, where these guys, prisoners, murderers, drug dealers would literally, uh, I'm probably not using literally, literally right there, but anyway, they were, uh, uh, being selected to fight for their freedom against Westerners who would come in and they'd beat the crap out of each other. Wait, so hemispheres wanted that story. I can't, I mean, I don't, I can't say I'm a huge reader of in-flight magazines, but I can't imagine opening an in-flight magazine and finding like a prison fight story. Like they usually try to stay on the lighter fare, like what's happening in on the beaches of Thailand or we something. You're looking at the wrong guy. They were like, do you want to go to Thailand? I was like, yep, sure. 
Fine. You were going to question their <laughs> desire for the story. I'm like, Great. That sounds wonderful. Uh, so uh, I went to Thailand. And um, so I went to, I ended up going to one of these prison fights. So the story came out really, sh- it came out in hemispheres, but it was it was really short. It was like only about 1,500 words. It did actually run. It huh. ran in an issue of hemispheres. And <laughs> it's so funny because this story, it didn't get, it's not like it got sanitized, but what's included Let's just say this. I went with a photographer to this prison, and I'd spent a lot of time in Thailand already reporting, and I'd never been inside the prisons, which are just, you know, it's really, I'm scared. I have the, my worst fears prison, just like, and this was 300 times worse. It was like 15 dudes to a cell and just, you know, cockroaches everywhere. And it was 115 degrees or whatever it was. Anyway, we watched the fight, and uh, one of the first fights, and this Thai serial murderer punched a guy so hard or kicked him so hard in the face that the British guy swallowed his tongue. And I remember like leaning over with the photographer, and there was like a guy like using his pinky as a fish hook to pull the the British guy's tongue out of the back of his throat because he was about to die. And I was like, well. Anyway, so I got back and wrote like, the this story. Is, this, this is great atmosphere material right here. <laughs> so, so I was just like over the Atlantic reading this. Like Anyway, but it did run. And then um, I just – it wasn't the end of the story, obviously, because it was something that just needed to be explored more, <laughs> this whole idea. So this is the only time this has ever happened to me, but um, I knew that there would be a lot of interest in it. Uh, magazine-wise, um, so I worked with uh, my agent, who's still my agent, and we sort of uh, like came up with a pitch and we sent it around to a bunch of magazines. It's the only time I've ever structured something that way with my agent, where we're actively pitching. Oh, it was like a book proposal, kind like of like a book proposal, huh. just because we felt like there was enough there. It was insane enough, and that. I don't know. I wanted it to go to a place that would be able to sort of honor the tone of it. Um, and men's, it ended up being men's journal, I think, um, for a lot of different reasons. The editors, they were great, but also men's journal is a good home for that kind of stuff. And they were into the sports aspect of it. And they were the photos where you could run big bloody photos. And so I, you know, I went back for men's journal, uh, five, Four months later, I went back for Men's Journal. To watch another fight. To watch a different fight. And in, the, in that case, what I did was it was the same sort of tournament deal, but I found different fighter and I found a Westerner, an American, a sailor who uh, – it's like we were, we were talking about earlier with you find the character who's going to carry you through. And it's – you know, I found this guy – this guy's name's Mark. He, he did not want to know who he was fighting. You know, I knew that the man he was about to fight had slit someone's throat with a glass bottle, but he didn't want to know that. <laughs> and I was like, "That's amazing that you don't want to know what you're what you're gonna what you're getting into the ring with." And uh, he didn't want to know, so I based the story around him and this murderer, and and that's what ran in Men's Journal. And I think. You know, it's a very different story. You can go back and look at the two, the Hemisphere story and the Men's Journal story, and they are, I mean, it's an interesting question journalistically and ethically, like about that sort of, you know, I don't don't think Hemispheres was wildly pleased that I went back and sort of did a version of that story for Men's Journal, but... I f- in that case, I felt like there was more to I think say. It's really an ethical question. I mean, it's a question of like, did your contract say you couldn't write about it in a certain amount of time? You probably were exclusive for some limited amount of time, but beyond that, exactly. Whatever, and you could write a book about it if you wanted. Yeah, exactly. People always want us to talk more about money on this podcast. Do you feel like you make a good living? Uh, yes. Yeah. I mean, okay, but this is so subjective, right? <laughs> I mean, people could have so many different responses and gradations of response to this based on on what they think what kind of life they want to have whether they live in new york of course it's a dumb question but uh, it's it was not, just a no, way it's to not get a dumb uh, question it's it's like i mean i don't know we can just talk about let's just talk about money we'll talk about money yeah okay we'll talk about money so let's say that the average place pays two dollars a word because that's sort of where we're at right now in the magazine world like as a base rate like you write for the magazine a little bit more they start to inch up Let's say you write like a five thousand word piece. You know that's that's ten grand. 
you need a lot of those. You don't need a lot. You need like six or seven of those a year to be making sixty or seventy grand. Yeah, if you but and, to do the math. and if you want to live in in New York and and you know, which which I don't anymore, but I was and and you know you're never. You know, you can get by on that, right? You can you can make a living on that, but I think it's it's partially the the calculus that goes into it is what I've often talked about with magazine friends is like, what's the end game? Yeah. So, all right, so let's say you grind that out, right? And you're like, okay, sixty, seventy thousand. Which I'm not, I'm not like, you know, I've made significantly more than that in a year, and I've made a little bit less than that in a year, but like that's what I would hope to be somewhere in the 60 to 80 range, let's say on yeah. any given year. So that's fine. I'm in my thirties now. I'm happy. That's, you know, I never had any illusions about being rich or anything like that. And okay. So that's fine now. But what happens when I'm like 50 or what happens when I'm 60 or what happens when I'm 70 and I've been, and I've been doing this and I do stick with freelancing and, you know, you you think, well, what what happens? Do you get a job at a university and you teach literary nonfiction? Maybe. I mean, that'd be awesome. It'd be great if anyone's out there listening <laughs> and wants to hire me. I'm I'm sold because I I mean I've taught a bit on an adjunct basis and I loved it. All right, so that's one outcome. Another outcome is like you write books, right? And you you slow down your pace a little bit. Uh, and the third is that you just keep grinding. Right, yeah. but what's that like to keep grinding? It's I mean, exhausting. It's exhausting, and I love it. I love. I would not, honestly, not exchange. Not only because I am literally not good at any other thing in the universe. Like there is nothing else that I am good at. Were you I, not a good bike messenger? I was a terrible bike messenger. Were you? Were you also a fry cook? Yeah, I was a fry cook, uh, and I was terrible at that. I used to drop so many steak and cheeses on the ground and I just like shovel them back in the bun. <laughs> this was in Massachusetts. Don't <laughs> worry if anyone's listening in New York. Uh, but no, I mean, I think so. Uh, I've watched um, people that I really idolize get to that point, and I think you do have they do have to make hard decisions about what they're going to do, right? Because if you have a growing family, let's say, and do you really want to be trekking around like Kyrgyzstan for three weeks at a time? Or, you know, do you really want your weekends taken up? So maybe, you know, some people are like, well, you know, I've had enough. I want to go. I don't know. What do people do in the real world? Get a job in public relations or something like that. Yeah. I think there's a whole like business side PR kind of thing, PR or whatever content marketing or something. And instantly up your salary by like, a hundred thousand dollars yeah i mean i think yeah part of the thing that's insidious about thinking of your freelancing career is that it doesn't go up like the rates aren't going up and it's not like when you hit certain levels they're like okay now you're you're up for a raise this year you're one of our longest serving employees it's just sort of like you're looking at making the same thing over and over and it takes a lot of forward motion to make it happen it's like a glamorous lifestyle on one level that's really like a grubby and scratchy and horrible existence on the other because it's you know it's it's cool like there's a real divide with I feel like with journalism and law right and so there's I have a lot of friends that went on to corporate law and like I'll be talking to them and I'll be like wow you make like a quarter of a million dollars a year <laughs> and like look at your apartment and then I think there's like the jealousy can cut both ways because they're like wow you get to like go interview interesting people you, just, you went to Siberia to like look for tigers so it's a mutual but it's mutual jealousy and i do think you're right i mean then there are also always young people younger people coming up behind you who will take the same rate and especially now with magazines shrinking their page counts and you know it is it's much tougher so i know there's a lot of a lot of different thinking about how people will make money i mean i know there's a lot of talk you know about all these different like you know movie deals or do you go in straight into books or do you do I don't know. Do you monetize your newsletter or something? I don't know. <laughs> this is how far I've gotten in, in my business side thinking. But I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm. The bottom line is, I'm very happy doing what I'm doing right now. Whether I will feel that way in ten years is a really interesting question, and and maybe that will radically change the type of stories that I do. I mean, you do see you're happy doing it. Yeah, it's not like you're sitting around uh, worried about money all the time. No. 
No, I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the great things right now is that you don't necessarily have to live in a super expensive place to be a freelancer. And in some ways, it helps you not to live in an expensive place. I will say that, like, it's you sort of have to come to New York once in a while so people don't forget that you exist, right? Like, they have to come and you have to have coffee with people and and still be on their radar. But, you know, there's nothing that says that you need to be a writer in Brooklyn to make it as a magazine writer. Good God, no. We get plenty of those. All right, Matt. Thanks for coming on this podcast. Thanks for having me. Let's go pick up my kid. All right, let's do it. That's it for this week's long-form podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff from Atavist. Thanks to Matt Scherer for coming in the studio. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, and to our wonderful editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman. Also our intern, Molly Bain, and our sponsors who keep this show going, who are MailChimp this week, as well as Squarespace and Masterclass, and Howl.fm. If you don't know Howl.fm, Howl is a new app and website that changes the way you think about podcasts. They have a thing called Howl Premium, which has dozens of original miniseries, audio documentaries. It has the archives of WTF, WTF, which I listen to. Uh, It has all the Earwolf shows, and it also has original monologues from Spalding Gray that were recorded. You should check those out. I was lucky enough to see Spalding Gray one time doing Swimming to Cambodia. It was incredible. Go check that out. It's $4.99 a month, and with the promo code code LONGFORM, you get a full month free trial. So go to howl.fm. Type in long form and check it out. We'll see you next week.